like to ask for your kind attention. Uh, we've been sitting for quite some time and this, rather than burden you with new exercises, I thought we'd do a little retrospective of some of the things you you have all learned, at least heard of, hopefully practiced. And um, it is my um, sincere hope that you take this away from here, that this is something uh, that you can add to your growing tool and skill set. As uh, you may remember, I claimed earlier on that no technique or method is going to make you free. However, techniques and methods have their place and they can be, come in quite handy. So let me see whether we can pull together some of the stuff we've been doing in these, in these few days. Um, so the Satipatthana pattern of the four channels, I think, is a useful map. Obviously, Satipatthana is not just a map. It's also a whole range of specific contemplative exercises um, that uh, the, some of which we have spoken of, mentioned, uh, and some of which we have not. There is more than what we have spoken of. So. I would like you to know that just uh, because these four channels somehow neatly uh, seem to map with uh, somatic, hedonic, affective and cognitive experience, this is not all there is to Satipatthana. This is a very reductionist version. It's charting the territory, so to say, of the raw material for these Satipatthana uh, exercises. The actual exercises on top um, are a lot more sophisticated and take just more time and space. But the map in itself is already very useful. So whenever you sit down and you have checked in with your posture and found uh, your embodied presence, uh, you've acknowledged the energetic state, you know, how awake you are, how alive you are, how much energy is there, how much mindfulness actually is at work then the map of the Satipatthanas will help you to identify the things that take place in your mind. It will just help you. Is this, do I have dealings with physical uh, experience right now? Or is this thought I'm dealing with? Or uh, am I displeased with something? Am I enamored with something? Uh, am I in the grip of a particular emotion? Yeah. And obviously the more dexterity you have in identifying dimensions of your experience, say, if you only have two emotions in your vocabulary of emotions, you know, happy and sad, then you're obviously going to miss a lot. But if you say, have learned to distinguish a sort of a slightly maudlin type of nostalgia with a whiff of sweetness, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then this, you know, then, you know, you're a your vocabulary for yourself and your discernment of your own uh, state uh, has become, becomes a lot more subtle than that. Yeah? So do make use of this map. Uh, be aware, like in TV, these, the channels are always broadcasting, so you never have only one channel running. If you have that impression, it means you're obsessed with that particular channel. It means you're your attention is probably fixated in that particular channel if you have the impression that the others are not happening. 
Yeah. Say, if you think that there is somehow you don't have a body, you only have thoughts or so, then this is the moment when you, you cannot resolve this from the place of thought. You know, you, you have to move out of the channel of thought to be able to address this issue. So just kind of getting your sati to move across these channels may be a very appropriate exercise after two, three minutes of sitting down and actually ha after having established a sense for posture, for breath, for balance, equipoise and all this. You may just do a satipatthana check and see what's on, you know. You know so you kind of surf through your channels uh, carefully with loins girded particularly around channel four because there's a lot of pull there there's a big toe in there uh, channel four usually has traction uh, because there's narrative there's me there is drama usually of sorts whose life is not a drama in some ways um, and uh, it's one thing to acknowledge that there's something happening in that channel, and it's another thing to actually engage and jump in and go. So acknowledging this wonderful acronym we've heard uh, Chris quoting, I forgot who it originally is from, this RAIN acronym. So the uh, uh, allowing, acknowledging part is an important bit. Let me look at some of the stuff we can do with body. So it's important because we are so familiar you know in some way body is not fascinating for most of us most of the time unless bodies are experiencing great pleasure or pain generally we are not so interested in the huge middling segment of embodied experience it's just not dramatic enough it's not promising enough gratification it's not exquisite enough you know much about body experience is not chiseled. See, one of the things with shifting attention through these channels means it's not just we need to look somewhere different if we want to shift from one channel to another. It's, it, it is as if we need to change the mesh of our attention. An attention that is prepared and geared to work with thought is an attention that expects sharp things flitting things, things that say exactly what they mean, things that are moving fast. Yeah. Now if you go from your mind, uh, cognitive mind experience dimension to your somatic uh, experience dimension, you may look or you may feel into the body, but you're still basically expecting chiseled things, sharp things, fast things, things that exactly say what they mean, yeah? because you're geared to thought. That's what thought does. But your body doesn't do things like that. Your body is slow, your body is amorphous, your body doesn't necessarily say what it means. You know, what is the warmth underneath your left uh, you know, upper rib mean? You, know, you don't know. There is no specific meaning to that. So if the mesh of your attention is still geared for thoughts, you may just turn to the body and you just find nothing because it's not specific, it's not precise, it's not chiseled enough. Yeah. So people often say, I don't feel anything. And yeah, I look at them and the way they sit tells me that they're in tension, that they're nervous, that they're restlessness, they may even scratch themselves and they claim they don't feel anything. Yeah. And they say, well, actually, you are. It seems like you're feeling a lot, but it's somehow this doesn't count for you. Yeah. 
So it's we need to change the mesh, the gauge of our of our attention when we deal with say body things because they're amorphous, they're slow, they meander from somewhere to elsewhere, and they may not have a clear meaning or a label. Yeah, we cannot interpret them on a one-to-one -one level. So we need not just to shift direction when we go from thought to body, we also need to somehow become more patient with things that are not clear. Now just your insistence on things being clear before you can attend to them will cut out much of your experience. Yeah? Particularly the male mind may be more prone to this, this kind of, whatever it is, just give it to me, but be clear, yeah? just give it clear. Yeah? Yeah? I, I take it on the chin, but you know, it's gotta be clear. Yeah? Yeah? And if you go in, the, in this mode, you know, most of your body will simply be not there because it just refuses to be clear on the terms you have applied or you have become familiar with in the realm of thought. Yeah? So be conscious of more, more space may be needed, more patience may be needed, more willingness to be with amorphous, diffuse stuff that doesn't say what it exactly means. Yeah. So learning to identify differing dimensions of body, say anything to do with skin, yeah, tactile. Uh, the Pali is not very specific. It speaks of portaba, that which is touchable. Uh, and that seems to imply that only things that we can actually touch, meaning tactile experience is implied. But this is not true. Any meditator will know you have plenty of internal body experiences. You know. But the, the ones... Touch, pressure, weight, contact are often the easiest. Warmth and coldness, they are often the easiest. They are the things you can feel with your skin. For all of these, your skin has specific receptors. Pressure, you know, if you press your leg right now, squeeze, squeeze part of your leg and just see how that sensation disappears after a split second, isn't it? You have a pinch sensation and then gone. Yeah. This is a tactile experience. And this is a way also to find back. If you're not sure what's happening, you can always acknowledge what the body touches. You know, the greatest degree of reality is the level of passa, is where we are being touched sensorially. That's the place where we can be sure that we're in the present moment. Mm -hmm. So if you're unsure, to be in the grip, of where you happen to be or whether you're in the grip of some uh, thought formation or an emotion, just pinch yourself. You know? Sorry, this isn't particularly Buddhist, but this is effective. Yeah? This is what you do when a friend has a panic attack. You know? When somebody uh, you know, in the mountains kind of looks into an abyss and feels he or she is lost, and then you, you speak to these people, you touch these people, you rope them up, you say, look, you're not going anywhere, I'm not going. Yeah? So you reassure them of their tactile sense. The, the sense of touch is our most, is calling us most immediately into a relationship. Yeah? So meditators should know this. And whenever we feel being lost or getting lost, you can always look for touch, tactile experience. That always helps you. If you want to reorient to the present and to the here and nowness. Do use your body. 
begin with the weight. None of our sensations are really totally reliable, but the sensations of weight are generally more reliable than some of our other sensations. Um, that has to do with very old stuff. I don't want to drag you in there. It has to do with the development of your brain and your vestibular sense. So when you have conflicts in your sensory information, you default to the vestibular sense. It's the oldest sense. It develops already in uh, stages as, as a fetus. So sense of balance, orientation in space. And it's no wonder that this is right at the beginning of Kaya Nupassana exercises in the Satipatthana Sutta, because there's some wisdom in there. Yeah? Although they have probably had less developed embryology in the days of the Buddha, they were aware of the placement of this sense in the bigger scheme of human sensory development. So it's important that you know this. Then establish dimensions, contact, verticality, and then space. In this sequence, what I touch, what is on top of each other, you know, uprightness, verticality, and then space. The volume, the fact that this body takes space, can be easily ascertained by just looking at that this space widens when I breathe in, when I breathe out. Something happens, the dilation, the light contraction. All this takes me into the spatial element. It takes me into a, an embodied space, a space of inner experience. Once that's there, usually the breath is somewhere in there. That breath comes and goes. Now, we speak of breath, but actually we're not speaking of breath. You don't do anything with your breath, to be honest. In Buddhism, you, you do not alter the breath. You're also actually not, strictly speaking, pay attention to the breath. You pay attention to the sensations connected with breathing. Yeah. And these sensations are preferably located somewhere here from your abdomen to the tip of your nose, somewhere in there. And it is the sensation, or more clearly the change in those sensations, connected with your breathing activity that you pay attention to. So your attention does not go out and in. You're not actually following the breath. You're following the sensation, preferably at an anchored area in your body. So belly, if you're in doubt, use the belly. Simply because most of our hindrances and most of our sense organs happen to do with our head. And the belly is half a meter away from that major uh, challenge. So it helps you center and ground and become more uh, balanced. If that becomes an area or a, a dimension of experience you can increasingly inhabit, and I, I use this word with intention, it is important that you do not just observe. While observing has its place, we do not want to end up observing ourselves. We do not want to translate mindfulness practice in, into the practice of perpetual witnessing and observation of oneself. You don't want to keep looking over your shoulder. You want to establish differing ways of relating to your experience. One of them is visual, yeah? that's observing, seeing, getting in perspective and so forth. The visual sense is a powerful metaphor for um, relating to things, but it's only one of six senses. Yeah? So if we listen to, uh, then we go into a different type of relationship. If we touch, we have a very different type of relationship. And remember, 
uh, our organs are not always working, uh, you know, they don't always do the same things. Um, the eye, for example, you can see things, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you are seen thereby. You can be in hiding and see people. You, know? you can be a voyeur. You can, it, there is no necessary equivalent relationship you can see without being seen. You cannot touch without being touched. Yeah. So you're in, already in a very different relationship. If you're in touch with your body, it's very different an experience, and also different a base for development of samadhi, for example, than if you are uh, just seeing your body. So do pay a moment attention and actually question how you relate to your own experience, whether this is a seeing experience or a touching experience or a listening experience or a sniffling out experience yeah these are very different experiences uh, much could be said about this but not now um, we have a breath and then you can identify different qualities of breathing you're on average breathing 15 times a minute and this is so normal that most of us have very um, are unaware how we breathe, unless we pant, or we breathe consciously very deeply, or we breathe a sigh of relief, or, or we're uh, gasping after air or so. We're generally not conscious how we breathe. And yet breathing is an immensely powerful uh, activity. In many ways it is uh, deeply symbolic of many other things in our lives. We, we have to let things in without knowing that they will be nourishing. We, we experience need and dependency. And however good it is and however perfect we do it, we have to give it back. We have to let go of it. And, you know, this is a profound symbolic uh, attitude that is manifested in every in and every out breath. You know, this kind of being filled and nourished and uh, giving what nourishes and fills us back very shortly after. Uh, this is a powerful experience. Uh, physiologically, we know this touches huge parts of us. Um, many things move. You know, your scapula moves, your clavicula moves, your chest widens, your belly moves, your diaphragm moves. You can feel breath if you can feel it. Uh, you can feel various parts of yourself in that breath. It's really big. So, getting in touch with aspects of your embodied experience of breathing does two things. One, it helps to sustain your attentional practice. Because the breath is dynamic, you can't just stay with it. Yeah? The tapering off at the end of the breath necessitates that you become more attentive when the sensation recedes. Okay? That little stimulus uh, is that which makes your attention muscle, muscle grow. It's the dynamic nature of breathing that makes it so ideal for the stilling of mind and for the stabilizing of attentional focus. You know, precisely because it's not stable. Precisely because it tapers off and demands that to the degree it tapers off, you need to be even more attentive. Yeah? So this little stimulus is the growth stimulus in the development of sati, uh, uh, First of all, attention, then sati, then samadhi. At the same time, the second thing the breath tells you when you associate with your breathing, you begin to 
experience bits of yourself because the way you breathe says something how you live it says something what's happening to you if you're getting angry this is going to change your breathing if you're sad this is changing your breathing if you're euphoric this is changing your breathing yeah so you're learning two things one is to stabilize attention with the help of your breathing the second one is you're learning something about yourself about how you hold yourself in this world that's why Anapanasati is particularly powerful and many cultures have understood that the, c- the connection between body and mind is breath. Yeah. The Greeks have their pneuma, the Indians have their prana, the Chinese and Japanese have their chi, even the Latins, generally the last ones on this one, uh, you know, better for measuring and dictating laws and running armies than the, than, than the East. Even the, even the Romans have uh, understood something about spiritus. Yeah? The connection between the body and the mind uh, is the breath. So it is via the breath the body can influence the mind. It is via the breath the mind can pacify the body. Yeah? Buddhist meditation teachings hinge, Buddhist mind cultivation hinges on this little principle. Chris mentioned it last, I believe, yesterday, or was it Chai? I forgot. One of them mentioned that the mind begins to resemble the things it picks up and makes much of. It keeps going back to. So, because it's easier to settle the body than to settle the mind, we begin with the body. So we sit down still. We sit down up in upright ways. We close our eyes. We breathe gently. And what happens is the body begins to calm. Because the body begins to calm, the breath begins to calm. The attention of the mind resting on the breath takes up the increasing calming of the breath and that is transferred to the state of mind. It's so simple, one is almost embarrassed to say it, yeah. that the mind begins to resemble the things it is preoccupied with. It goes back to and it takes up time and again. If you watch TV adverts, obviously something else happens because there's highly paid people who use all their creativity to pack into 25 seconds of something that instills you with all the longings they can probably trigger. You know, you you get so much promise. What a washing powder is supposed to do, or or a new pair of shoes, or yeah. So because. If you have uh, ever looked how fast montages in 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 a, in a TV advert, how many cuts are there? Yeah. Just anything that speeds up is more likely to make us excited. Is triggering responses of hope, of fear, of uh, thrill, yeah. all kinds of very, very primeval triggers are being pulled. Advertisements have long, advertisement folks have long understood this. You know, ads work not because you believe them. <laughs> you don't need to believe an ad. <laughs> That's not the necessary thing. They still work. You know, if ads only worked, if we believed what ads say, uh, they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't be worth the money. But they do work even if we don't believe. Your intellectual disbelief of what the stated message of the advertisement is is of very little consequence when it comes to your purchase decision yeah so we are seduced by speed 
by evocative imagery, by uh, seductive associative patterns into uh, triggered longings, triggered hopes, triggered wishes for gratification. So this is the very opposite of mindfulness of breathing. A breath is not very promising. A breath is not very dramatic. A breath is very, you know, there's many of them. It, it, it doesn't have unique exotic value. And however good I'm breathing in or I'm breathing out, you know, shortly after 8.42, a Kinjano had perfected his in-breath. You know, yeah. And then he, he has to give it back. Uh, it's not something you do and you get, you know, the, the ultimate achievement, you know. He, he had his perfect in-breath. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous, isn't it? There's a profound humility in the fact that we need to keep doing this. It teaches us lots. It teaches us something about dependency. It teaches us something about change. It teaches us something about impersonality. The dependence is clear. If I need to breathe, otherwise I die. The change is also obvious. The coming and going is fairly evident. The impersonality is also fairly evident because it's deeply impersonal what's taking place. This is a gaseous exchange. The CO2 molecules I'm breathing out have not my name on. Yeah? The O2 molecules I'm breathing in and I depend on they don't belong to me. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something profoundly impersonal about this. The, the, the elementary nature of a breathing process tells me something about my the profoundly impersonal nature of experience as such. Yeah. I cannot own a breath. I, I cannot mark my in-breath. It, that there aren't particles of air out there that say a kinshin on. I'm sharing my breath even with my worst enemies. You know? All political camps are breathing the same air. Yeah, it's quite powerful as a call. So this breathing experience is, on a very physiological way, beautifully useful to pacify the mind, to make the mind and the body friends. So if I learn to make use of this, then this is going to take me into deeper stillness and deeper intimacy with my, with my experience and with my response to the things I experience. We have further identified Vedana, um, hedonic tone, as a crucial element in our attention, in our attentional economy, and by identifying the bits we actually find pleasurable, and the bits we find not pleasurable, we have heightened our chances to stop the carousel of pursuit and avoidance. If we know what triggers our pleasurable, our hedonic hotspots and our hedonic potholes, um, then we know that how to stop that pursuit and that avoidance pattern. If we can't stop it, and at least we in an acknowledged way, know what's going on. We stop believing that we are just doing things in an organically natural way. We have realized, ah, I have been triggered. Now an impulse has arisen. I like to pursue this. This is, a lot is won by that. Just to know this gives us a better ch chance to actually make informed decisions. 
Yeah. So that's why these Vedana are so important. Because they, in, in most situations, they rule our attentional uh, directions. Yeah. Our atten- if you find yourself doing things you don't understand why you're doing, look at the Vedana aspect. You will find something in there that is gratifying, or you will find something in there that avoids you some form of discomfort. That may be mental, it may be physical, um, it may be subtle, it may be moral, it may be immoral, whatever. You will find, if you keep doing things, you don't understand why you do them, you will find some form of pleasure or displeasure in there. That's why it is so crucial to identify this feature in our experience. It is uh, maybe poignantly uh, uh, more... um, important because Western psychology seems to not account for this in, to the extent in, in which Buddhist psychology accounts for this so clearly. We have looked at the emotions. Well, the affective dimension called citta is full of life, full of meaning, full of juice. That's what, we, that's what emotions are largely responsible for, they create meaning. We want emotions because they give us meaning. You know, we want to feel connected, we want to love and be loved, we want to seek things that in some way give us a sense of vitality, of empowerment, of... Um, yeah, we differ a little bit, but most of us want to be in some way vitalized. They want to be energetic. They want to be meaningful activities. They want to um, feel seen and recognized, and they want to feel all their light bulbs going on. Yeah, we don't just want to run on two cylinders if we have six. So we seek richness. We seek contentment. We seek fulfillment by seeking vitalization. Um, That's quite normal, that's the healthy part. Um, The less healthy part is that we seek that by often pursuing mind states of desire or by pursuing mind states of aversion or by pursuing mind states that are deeply colored with uh, fundamental forms of misunderstanding, forms of confusion, forms of denial, or simply not knowing things, not understanding what takes place. So, useful to ask a few questions. We may remember we did some exercises that we asked the question, what that mind state right now is called? Is this joy? Is this anger? Is this um, despondency? Is this euphoria? Is this generosity? Again, the more, the bigger your vocabulary is of mind states you recognize in yourself, the more subtle this will become, the more aware you will be of differing notes and flavors. You can have layered emotions. You know? It can be at, at, top of, at the top there may be a little brashness, and underneath there may be insecurity, and further down there may be sadness. Yeah? We're not all in one cast. A good interesting question would be to look at some of the imagery and the thought material that keeps coming back, not just stray thought, but stuff that keeps coming back, tenacious patterns of thinking, and you keep experiencing that these emerge, that these constellate themselves, even though you park them for days to do samatha exercises, and yet they keep coming back. 
So this sort of material you may really would uh, gain, examine and see what are the emotional fuels that propel this type of thought or image pattern. Is this anger? Is this slight? Is this joy? Is this happiness? Is this spite? Is this um, greed? Yeah, You might try to identify where the thought pattern or the image pattern gains its emotional fuel. Every thought has an emotional component. Remember, four satipatthanas are always happening concurrently. Sometimes we are aware of the emotional fuel of the thought. Sometimes we're not. You know, I'm just critically constructive, you know, in my head. If I look at the discursive component, this is just critical constructive feedback, you know. But if I look at the emotional propellant behind it, I may find actually this is venge, revengefulness. Or, you know, I'm just, just sheer, just, just pure curiosity. Sorry, nothing, nothing. And then you find an anxiety underneath, or you know, or or already resistance, or yeah. So, it's kind of we need to bypass talking to the thought and getting in touch with the with the momentum behind the thought. Yeah. So that would be a second type question, and the third type was, you know, when you see things arise again stuff that is recurrent, you don't do that with a, f a first-timer, yeah? You don't do that with a freshman thought, yeah? You just do that with, pe with, with thoughts that keep coming back, thoughts that if you've put many times aside. You investigate and say, okay, if I give my energy to you, where do you take me? Uh, have I done that right before? Yes, I have done that right before, seven billion times. I know exactly where you take me. Yeah. Do I want to be there? No. I don't want to be there. Do I think that I am a happier person? No. Am I a generous person? No. Am I a more contented, a helpful person? No. So why should I board that thought train? So we say no. We learn to say no. One of the notes asked about the relationship between meditation and th psychotherapy. Well, this would be a topic for a big symposium. <laughs> but let me say very briefly, there is a ther therapeutic value to meditation. It, depending on how your life looks, almost any activity can have a therapeutic value. Okay, That doesn't mean that it, the purpose of this particular activity is therapeutic. You know, I personally love chopping wood. Chopping wood is a very therapeutic activity for me. I don't think the purpose of chopping wood is intrinsically therapeutic. Yeah? It's to get wood chopped. But, um, and it's, uh, something of that nature is true. Meditation is inevitably going to release things, make greater awareness, show you possibilities of transformation, bring you in touch with your own strength, your capacity to hold, to know, to touch into. All this is deeply therapeutic stuff. The purpose of meditation is not intrinsically therapeutic. The Buddha had some very clear visions. He wanted human beings to basically be free, free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Not a little bit, but completely. And this whole program is designed for that. But obviously, meditation, as we do it here, and as you will experience, it has a tremendous amount of ther therapeutic effects. Because it has that, the thought may arise it may substitute or supplant therapy. Um, and I'd be hesitant to subscribe to that. Unfortunately, 
you know, your, your, your neuroses are meditating along with you. They're part of, you know, they're part of your um, meditation practice, part of your motives, part of your responsive, part of your rating how, how, how well you're doing. So um, I hesitate to say that, but I don't think there are spiritual shortcuts through developmentally psychological terrain. And while uh, many things can resolve over time and through uh, practice that is developing along some guidelines, preferably mentored in some way, because we may get lost on our own, you see. We may just keep seeking pleasure. We may just keep seeking comfort. We may just keep seeking an avoidance strategy, to deepen an avoidance strategy in the name of some spiritual practice. This is what you have to suspect you're doing, okay? This is not just happening to bad people. This is happening just how the mind works. We all begin this path with following basically what makes sense to us, following what we instinctively feel we either already know a little bit about, following something we are capable of recognizing. That means that basically people in some way do most most of the time what they don't actually need. Yeah? So if you have an authority complex, you probably go to Arjan Chah's people who don't tell you any method, you know, because they leave you all the freedom. If you are a control freak, then you end up in a Burmese Satipatthana tradition because they tell you very exactly what to do. They have daily interviews. They give you 16 jnanas to run through and for every jnana you, your side is going to ask you precise questions. So you will be attracted by a particular type of practice that has something to do with your temperament or with your bend of mind. If you're in a genuine tradition and if you have a decent teacher, sooner or later you will find out about this. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. This is just how learning works. Yeah? We don't have an option. You learn with what you already in some way resemble and that's what inspires you and that's what's meaningful. And then in there you begin to realize what you're doing. And for that, generally you need people, fellow practitioners, what we call kalyanamitas, noble friends or teachers. And therapists can play a role in there. Some of the stuff that constellates in your psyche can be constellated more easily in relationship with another human being. So if you have such a person, certainly useful. If you are a therapist, uh, I would beg you to not hide that you're a meditator. Yeah. It may put some of your clients at ease. You may risk turning up on the same retreats with them. That's another story. But it, as a meditation teacher, I keep being asked for therapists' contact details who have meditation experience. There's a huge amount of people out there who look for therapists with meditation experience. If you are such a person, please do not hide. Yeah. A private little plug. Do not hide yourself. You don't need to present yourself as an expert or as a certified meditation guru or so, but uh, it may put some of your patients' minds at ease if they know that they can come with this part to you. And you know, um, therapy is much what you allow as a therapist to come in, into a relationship or into a setting. And if you don't allow this, it will simply not come in. Yeah. And it will devalue your work. So 
there is a place for therapeutic relationship on the path of the meditator. I don't think the therapy is going to supplant the necessity for meditation. And I also don't think that meditation necessary is going to make the therapeutic profession jobless. How it actually uh, interacts depends on your particular build, it depends on your your therapist's availability and competence, but I do not see these things as hostile. I, I have for a long time in my life, particularly in my early monastic life, I've tried to look down onto the nether worlds of psychology and um, I've come a long way. I've actually, I've become one of them. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm very firmly convinced that we cannot take spiritual shortcuts through stuff we need to developmentally address. There are, you know, dukkha comes on many levels. There's a transpersonal type of dukkha. There is a dynastic type of dukkha. There is a personal type of dukkha. And each of the forms of dukkha needs to be met with, compassionately and soberly met with, um, on the level or a little bit beyond where it occurs. So you can't just universalize personal suffering. Personalized suffering, the loss of somebody loved one, is not being met with when you say, well, yeah, you knew that. All things are impermanent. You know, husbands are impermanent, so what? You know, we could have told you that long before. That's not compassion or wisdom. This is just heartlessness and distancing. Uh, It's saying, I don't care for your pain, uh, and I'll give you a glib answer. That experience of personal loss can only be met with at the personal level where you allow this. Obviously, uh, husbands and wives are as permanent as as the weather, as as impermanent as the weather is in some ways. We all know that. And yet there is a profound intimacy and a profound meaning in the connection with another human being in which we are close and which we may lose or which may lose us. Uh, and that is a developmental path and an experience that cannot be just glibly brushed aside with pointing to universal impermanence. So there is a suffering that needs to be met with at different levels. Yeah? And in some of that meeting of our own suffering, and remember this is, this is where we practice. Chris pointed that out a few days. That suffering is the pointer from where we grow, which tells us that we there is need for growth, that there is holding on. Wherever it hurts, there is some form of holding. Yeah, that's the message. And if we take that message, then that holding can be released. If we try to get rid of the suffering without doing the work, we will perpetuate that suffering in some other variation. But that suffering comes at us on many levels, and these levels have their place. And a therapeutic encounter and friends and teachers all have their place in the meeting in the meeting of our own suffering good let me stop here and let us uh, sit for a few minutes
please take a stretch. Um, in a few minutes, walking meditation. Um, Chris, Jaya and I have put up some uh, slots for individual interviews. If you have requested on a note such an interview, please have a look. You may already be on there. Uh, if not, fill fill these slots uh, as much as there are available. We are conscious to may not have answered your note. To some notes we simply cannot answer. Um, we are also conscious that we cannot all see you individually. We have a feeling that we have given much time to groups, so we feel that this is um, not lack of our care. Uh, if you feel the need to see us, please uh, fill in and um, practice well. It's not going to get easier. So let's not let's not quite go home yet. Yeah. So and if your mind goes home, uh, you consider this as a thought hindrance, and you return it to what you have identified as your practice. Yeah. Good. Shall we ask for volunteers to ring the Yeah. Good point. Thank you, Jaya. Uh, could we ask for some volunteers to ring a bell at the end of our sitting? It's possible that we're not here to ring that bell today. This gentleman, yeah, and Erica, you offered a few days ago to ring a bell. Would that be do doable? Good, thank you. So maybe the gentleman can ring the bell for the, the 10 o'clock sitting, yeah, before the 10.45 walking. And Erica, you could take care of the 11.30 sitting. Yeah? That means you come up and sit here and try how it feels sitting here and then ring the bell. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.